Welcome to the Next Gen Baker podcast, where we explore what's next in banking and talk with the innovators responsible for creating positive change in the financial sector. Today, we have a special treat as we recorded an episode live at the FinTech House at South by Southwest. Listen as guest host Dara Tarkowski, managing partner at Actuate Law and host of Breaking Bank's sister podcast, Tech on Reg, speaks with Mike Bechtel, chief futurist at Deloitte Consulting, and David Ryling, chairman and CEO of Sunrise Banks, author for FinTech for Good, and host of Provoke.fm's Next Gen Banker. Before we get started, just a reminder to stick around to hear our musical feature at the end of the episode. Each Next Gen Banker episode showcases one new artist from somewhere around the globe, representing a wide range of different genres. So be sure to check it out. Now, without further ado, let's get it rolling. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the FinTech House. We are recording live at the Alloy Labs FinTech House at South by Southwest. Amazing sponsors. Um, I'm Dara Tarkowski. I'm the managing partner of Actuate Law and the host of the Tech on Reg podcast on Provoke.fm. Super jazzed to guest host this very special episode of Breaking Banks. And with me this afternoon, we've got two fantastic guests, Mike Bechtel, Chief Futurist at Deloitte Consulting, and David Ryling, Chairman and CEO of Sunrise Banks and author of FinTech for Good. And for those of you who don't know, Sunrise Bank uh, not only is a founding member of Alloy, is a B Corp, CDFI, and a member of the Global Alliance for Banking on Values. Um, one of those financial institutions truly committed to promoting financial empowerment for all socially responsible banks. Very excited to be sitting here with you too. You, uh, yes, like absolutely, like yay sunrise. Um, Mike, I actually don't think I have seen you in a very, very long time since back in your lab days as we were hoarding boxes of chocolate out of Mike Redding's house. So I, so consider this uh, an official shout out to all of the Accenture Labs alums. Mike, anything you want to say to that crew? Just uh, Labs legends represent. Hello to uh, a certain Adam Tarkowski, <laughs> who I may or may not know is related to a certain Dara Tarkowski. And uh, yeah, yeah, go Lavers. Go Lavers. Um, all right. So as we have promised the audience today, it has been an absolutely wild time for the financial services industries from so many different angles. Um, increased regulatory scrutiny. I feel like we've gone through 30 news cycles in the past 10 days. Um, we're here at South by Southwest, which has doubled down on its focus on technology, innovation, and the deployment of the technology in our everyday lives and in our businesses. So it seems as though we've reached an inflection point on the proliferation of technology into our daily lives. Mike, I would really love to start with you. Um, it seems that every day we're talking about a new app, a new tech fad, it's chat DPT, it's AI this, it's, it's building algorithms. Technology's good, technology's bad. And as a woman who generally likes to cut straight to the point and yeah. through all of the nonsense, I'd love to hear from you to tell us where you think the real opportunities in these uh, evolving technologies lie and what's just hype and nonsense. Oh, clear it up for us. Yeah, right? simple. Yeah, like, okay, simple like, I'm timing you. All right, Go. great. Uh, okay, for starters, uh, I don't think tech's good or bad. I think it's a, it's a force multiplier. It's a tool. And that can sound kind of weak, but here's why I, I really believe it. I studied anthropology back in 
in undergrad. And we talked about human history, pre-human history, and whether people were talking about, you know, sticks and stones fashioned into tools. The fact was, even back then, those tools, which for those folks were technology, right, could be used to get your dinner, could be used to do harm to your neighbor. And so futurists are low-key secret historians. And when we look at the history of technology, we tend to reject the, everything being like a revolution, a change of, of kind, not just degree. And so, Derek, to you know, give you that concise answer you're after, whole history of technology, at least regards business, if interactions are getting simpler, it's probably a path to profitability. If information insights systems are getting smarter, it's probably a path to profitability. If the number crunching in the basement is getting more capable, it's a path to profitability. If it ain't one of those three, right? Simpler interactions, smarter, right? Information, more capable computation, it might be snake oil. Well, you made an interesting comment before because for example, the tools that we developed to hunt and gather and feed our families, you mentioned also were the same tools that we could use to murder our cave neighbors, right? <laughs> so we also talk about the, the, the ethics and morality uh, of technology and the way we use it and the way we deploy it. That is, that is the defining difference. So David, let's talk about the ethics of a lot of the technology that you know the world is experiencing right now. And then sort of specifically in the financial services world, What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a great place to start in, in terms of, again, the anthropology in the history. I can tell you from working into uh, low-income communities my entire career, I can tell you what the credit score difference is between a person who lives in a low-income community and one who does not, who lives in the suburbs, with the exact same profile. It'll be at least 40 to 50 basis points or points different. And so these are just uh, functions of algorithms and so forth in terms of a credit score, um, but we know that they exist. And it's so as we look at the future, in my opinion, like as we use, I'll use chat GPT and open AI and so forth, um, it still needs human interaction. It's not perfect. And I do think AI does need parents, maybe specifically grandparents, to put some wisdom over the layers of the algorithm because yeah. you just can't put everything into code or all the perspectives. Um, you know, one of the facial recognition issues at the beginning was for uh, minority communities. It didn't recognize at the same kind of accuracy rate as it did Caucasians. So it, it's, that's an issue, right? They yeah. just couldn't, they just didn't do it or think about it in its development. Well, and, and Dave, to your point, you know, one of the things that we've, we've been researching, so Deloitte's been in the business of researching tech trends for the last 15 years. And when you, when you study all things newfangled, you, you start to see patterns in the patterns, right? And one of them this year that we, we, we've really picked up more than ever is that trust trumps tech, oh. right? That, that, you know, remember that scene, right, from, from Jurassic Park, Jeff Goldblum, right? Your scientists were so busy wondering if they could. They didn't ask if they should. Right? We're seeing that in boardrooms all over the place where yeah. people are saying, man, we've got this magical brain in a box. Ask it anything. It'll blow your mind. And that's a recipe for a bad time. Sure. That's weapons in the hands of children. Yeah. That's mindless harm to your neighbor. And so I think intentionality, to your point, that's going to make all the difference knowing that we're, we're approaching this stuff like, like adults 
with a mind towards mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I think there's a lot of concern, um, you know, and this goes broader than just the financial services industry, but we are going to, we are going to come back to banks and banking and what, and what this all means. But in general, we'll talk about AI, for example, because you, I mean, God bless the OpenAI team and, you know, the press releases and the media surrounding, you know, the deployment of ChatGPT, the way, you know, anyone, my 12 year old can go, you know, create an account and start <laughs> and start playing with the technology. Right. Um, but really, truly, there's aspects of that. And I was reading a piece and I can't remember if it was Alex Johnson or, you know, one of the other, you know, brilliant writers that I follow all the time that made the observation that this was just the appetizer and not the entree for artificial intelligence. I would love to say that those words are mine, but they're, they belong to someone much smarter <laughs> than me. Sure. Um, David, what are your thoughts on that? I couldn't agree more. I think chat GBT is, is the warm up. It's the, oh, this is really what AI can do. Um, it can write this letter for me and be 80% ish, 90% right. And then it can learn from that. I just think we're at the very tip of what artificial intelligence is going to take us down the road. Um, it, I think it's just going to get better and better. Yeah. Now, it's a little scary. I mean, I hope you can appreciate that as a lawyer, how much that terrifies me to, oh, to, I... to, to, hear, you, to hear you say. Yeah. Um, but as long as it's only 80% and then like I get to okay the last you get 20%, to, yeah, yeah, then I, I feel much better yeah. about it. <laughs> but, yeah, it but, Same fee, shorter time. <laughs> but one of the conversations that I have with my clients pretty regularly lately is it's about the standard that we use to judge AI and specifically generative AI, right? They're, uh, you know, nerd alert. The best description, definition I've ever heard for AI was from Larry Tesler. He was a researcher at Xerox Park back when we thought of Xerox for hardcore R&D right. and not as this thing we used to do. And he said, listen, AI is whatever computers can't do yet. And I always loved that because it worked in 1956. It worked in 1996. Like AI can't play chess, watch me, right? Worked in 2011, Jeopardy, not gonna happen, happen. Right? What's different now, right, is it's making its way into the sort of white collar, sort of journalist class, chattering class, you know, like creativity in yeah. silico, what? And back to the standard, I've got some, some clients who say, I've seen those paintings, it's no Picasso. So the standard isn't Picasso, the standard's utility. Yeah. I bet it I bet it's good enough to make a greeting card. Right? And I, I've seen that writing, it's it's no uh, Keats. It's probably good enough to do some ad copy. Right. And and so I think we gotta just remember the standard is utility, and that's gonna free up time for our people to do higher order things. Yes. I believe. Well, I may or may not have asked ChatGPT to write a sonnet in Shakespearean voice for me at some point <laughs> just to see, just to if see it what write. it could do. Yeah. And it might not be Keats, but it's kind of close to Shakespeare. <laughs> um, all right. So, again, countless discussions and debates about the ethics, uh, you know, the ethics of artificial intelligence. Um, and I want to get a little FI specific and financial services specific, particularly because I think some of the first headlines we really saw years ago, and I think this was back in 2019 when they were talking about, you know, disparate credit outcomes sure. um, with the use of with the use of AI pretty sure that was you know surrounding the whole Apple card debacle you know several years ago 
How much of that do you see um, as being problematic now with today's evolution of how sort of those scoring and those credit decisioning uh, issues are being dealt with? You know, CFPB is dipping its toe into the use of alternative data and trying to attempting to create some sort of standards around there. So, you know, as the chairman and CEO of a bank, mm -hmm. particularly a socially responsible bank, what are your thoughts about how we can make sure that we are using AI ethically, specifically around, you know, making sure that, you know, those consumers are and small businesses are getting the right products and services for them and not experiencing those disparate outcomes. Yeah, it, it's great. It's a super easy question. Yeah, right? super yeah. easy question. So um, <laughs> let me answer it this way, because I'm uh, I'm gonna it's really easy to go to the what's wrong and what's negative, but how do you use the AI? to constantly monitor your origination and underwriting practices such that you can detect that uh, disparate impact on people in real time, as opposed to waiting months and months for data. How can we make sure that as applications are coming in and being approved, that we have some tolerance of ethical boundary, that we're not uh, favoring one over the other? Um, and as we put in new data sets, then we can test it. Does this create, does this particular new data set create a problem in the algorithm, uh, in the outcomes? Is it leaving somebody out that normally shouldn't be? Or is it putting somebody in who might shouldn't be? And then you have, let's say, a credit risk. So there's going to be, um, I think, a lovely and robust ethical decision, but can we use the power of AI to do good? And, and to get ourselves out of problems that we always looked in the back saying, oh, I already did the lending in the past year and I did leave this particular class of people out. Um, it's done, but can we do that now uh, by two o'clock in the afternoon? Also, please CC your lawyer on all of those communications. So <laughs> of that course. may remain privileged. Mike, from your perspective and, you know, stepping back because you have such an interesting uh, exposure to a cross section uh, of industry, including financial services, but also well beyond, how important is that sort of thought process and analysis at the governance level? What type of resources do you need to be putting at your board level, at your risk committee level to ensure that, you know, boots on the ground are doing it right? but Buck, buck stops with the board to yeah. make sure that um, you know the practices of any organization are not going to land them in hot water. So, sort of, uh, you know, concentric circles from from down in the server room all the way up to the boardroom. I, I think something we've seen cross industry is that uh, if we train our models and our algorithms and our AI ML on the data we've always used, we're always gonna get what we always got, which is I think a, a butchered Yogi Berra quote, but you know what I'm saying. One of the frames, you said it so well, Dave, this idea of um, uh, parentage or grandparentage. Yeah. Or this. We've gotta take this mindset of like, teach your digital children well, right? Now we're bringing Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Yeah, right, exactly. But, but keep, here's, keep them coming. All right, all right. I have an inexhaustible supply of analysis. <laughs> But here's the idea. To do that, right, an old colleague of mine, a fellow by the name of Raid Ghani, uh, works at Carnegie Mellon now for their Center for Data Science and Social Good. He said, step one is the uncomfortable act. He testified before Congress on this. The uncomfortable act of making tacit biases explicit. 
which is uh, fancy talk for naming these things we've done wrong yeah. because the machine to be trained needs to see it right. in, in zeros and ones, not whispers and winks, right? Right? Great point. Right? Yeah. Yes, so, exactly. So the first step is admitting you have a problem. That's right. Yeah, like, totally. It's a great classic. Everything That's begins it. with the truth, right? Amen, yeah, okay. amen. And yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and then step two, right? And, and this is still down here a little bit, but you know, two, three, four, five years ago, it was all about using the best machine learning model, like deep adversarial generative networks, yada, yada, yada. Here's the thing. Those things tend to be black boxes. And if you have kids, right? Kids, yep. kids. kids. Um, there's a reason math teachers say, show your work. Because it's not enough to get an answer. How'd you get your answer? Those black box models don't do it. You can't audit, you can't govern, right? Yep. What you need is a glass box. And so what we're seeing a lot of our clients do is they're, they're willing to trade off a little bit of performance on the, the, the robo mind so that they can get a show your work model. With those two, the left hook and the right jab, then, right, you can get the DevOps folks, the, the, the tech folks, the C-suite folks to govern and audit, and then show that work to your board and say, here's what we decided, here's how we trained it, now you can govern. Well, you not only have to show that work to your board, ultimately, you're going to have to show that work to your examiners and your regulators yeah. and the CFPB um, because, you know, we're all still fallible, right? Mis mistakes are going to happen. And it's really how we manage and, and react to those situations. And it's a lot easier to do with a glass box than it is yep. a black box. For sure. So we have a few minutes left. Um, and I know that several people would literally kick me if we did not talk about the absolute uh, circus that has been the financial services and the banking world for fintech in the past week or so. So we're going to spend just a little bit of time talking about Silicon Valley Bank, SVB. And for the bankers and fintechs that are listening, it has certainly been a wild few months in general. Regulatory scrutiny had already been um, at really an all-time high. And then several months ago, we all got SBF'd. And now we are getting SVB'd. So David, <laughs> can you give us just a real quick update as to what SVB really means for those banking fintech right now and the fintechs who are caught in the middle of it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is in an unfortunate place to be, and that is certainly understated. Um, and on both sides of this fintech equation, if you're a fintech and your money is stuck in the process, obviously there's payroll, there's payments to be made, there's all sorts of things going on there, and your business and your livelihood is at risk at the moment, and you're looking for solutions, and I'm sure there's real fear out there as to what is going to happen. We will see things happen, and I think my opinion of the FDIC and so forth is they will likely move things along quickly because um, it's in everybody's best interest. Um, and so hopefully that freeze on deposits will thaw awfully quick and things will start to come back to normal and people get access hopefully to all their money. Now, I don't work for the FDIC, um, but I think in my own opinion, it would be a huge mistake if the depositors were shorted even one penny. Um, that, that confidence in the financial system needs to continue. Otherwise, you may have a systemic issue here in terms of confidence. On the banker side, while I'm sure I'll receive a phone call from my regulator as to um, 
what my liquidity position is and so forth as to the real reason of, of why SVB failed. Um, there's going to be more, I think, long-term scrutiny in terms of how banks oversee their fintech clients or that whole value chain down to the customer. And so if we thought there was a lot of compliance before, I think you're going to have more and more scrutiny into it and the need for more transparency across the whole value chain. And Mike, again, as someone with sort of that cross-industry knowledge, what are your thoughts on sort of the implications that exist uh, for the broader tech community? Well, you know, I was in um, I was in Denmark last week, which you don't hear every day, uh, and um, I had this fascinating discussion with with some business leaders there who were marveling about the United States' ability to to innovate. To, to take big risks and do big things. And, and several of these you know, very successful Danish leaders just sort of called it as they saw it. They said, we, we, don't, we don't take those risks. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it got me thinking that, you know, for, having been a VC, I was a VC for eight years, um, entrepreneurs, right, they, 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 they tend to feel like they have nothing to lose. Right? They need to feel like they have nothing to lose. Either they're because they're definitionally broke and they, 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 they don't. <laughs> or, or, they're, or they're sufficiently banked. And so what's a mill? Right? That 85% in the middle, as discussed in, you know, the, the, you know, maybe different countries, right? Where it's not the extremes. Um, they're playing not to lose as opposed to yeah. playing to win. And so I, you know, I, I just think that as I've seen it, um, I would never wish broke on anybody, yeah. but without sufficient access to liquidity and capital, I don't think we're going to have people shooting for the stars. So, so I, let's, let's hope that this gets resolved and expeditiously. It's a great point. And it's one that, um, as an entrepreneur, that is frightening that there's no opportunity to start a business, to try something, to fail. Yeah. And um, I mean, you could, you can criticize America for a lot of different things, but one is it is a land of opportunity. And if you can get access to the capital to try an idea, it's how we move forward. That's it. That's it. Um, we go big or we go home or the FDIC sends us home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the penalty box. You go, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I don't know a more delicate way to put no. that. Yeah, that's it. Um, so I think we're close to the end of our time. Um, you know, given where we're sitting right now, we're in the middle of you know a conference that I'm very happy is 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 back probably stronger than ever post pandemic. It's been absolutely fantastic getting to meet everyone here at South by. Any sort of final thoughts or words for our listeners? Oh boy, I, I would just say, um, for, well, first gratitude. Thanks for spending some time yeah. with us all, and and for having us, team. Uh, and and then secondly, um, you know. All, all these discontinu discontinuities feel like uh, explosions that we've never seen before, and and I think if we just pull it pull back, you realize that um, it, you know, it it, it it doesn't always have to feel unprecedented all the time. You see patterns, you see signals, a little bit of measured response, resisting the the hyperbole. I think is good for the heart, the head, the soul, and um, I think we'll get through this, right? I think we'll get through this. You know, I was in a conversation earlier uh, today and I was talking about, I love mild chaos. 
because mild, <laughs> mild, mild chaos is where the opportunity lies. It's not extreme chaos. That's too much to handle. And it's not little chaos because there's really nothing there. It's that middle ground where it's uncomfortable. And I think we are in a very, un we're in an uncomfortable spot right now with what's happening in the fintech world um, on, on all levels. And, but I think there's great opportunity in there. And it's really, you know, coming to South by and having conversations with, with people, you start to discover what is possible and where the niches and the angles are. And again, it goes back to that entrepreneurial mindset of, mm. oh, we got a business idea here that could maybe work. And so, I don't know, I think the human ingenuity and spirit by getting together, uh, even in troubled times, I think there's good that can come out of it. And so it's fun to be here. For this episode's musical feature, we're showcasing Holly Hamill. Hamill is a Nashville-based singer, songwriter, producer, and touring background vocalist. She has had the opportunity to perform and record with the likes of Joss Stone, Hans Zimmer, Carrie Underwood, and Brandi Carlisle. Here is A Holiday With Me by Holly Hamill. was A Holiday With Me by Holly Hamill. You can find more of Hamill's music on Spotify. If you would like your music featured on the Next Gen Banker podcast, email david at nextgen-banker.com with the link to your music and website. Thanks for listening to the Next Gen Banker podcast. We'll see you next time.